History is not a flat line, punctuated by heroes rising with foresight like stalagmites to claim their plimps. Memory is by design. Paid for, curated, collected, not objective, it's misremembered, dismembered. Stories are surrendered, others unremembered, unvalued, undervalued or unseen. Ask, when was it built and why? We remember in code, symbols and symbolism by nepotism, altruism, euphemism. Ask, who paid for it and why? We remember through the rosy prisms we see through and the layers of our world view. Theism, atheism, liberalism, communism, Thatcherism, unionism, socialism, hedonism, pragmatism, journalism, criticism, anti-disestablishmentarianism. Ask, who does it celebrate and why? We remember victorious narratives rather than the alternatives. We create monolithic pyramids. Ask, who is not here and why? They are not axiomatic, not self-evident, instead deliberate, systematic, these static sculptures, snapshots of captured cultures. The truths they tell are enigmatic, traumatic, problematic wounds on the landscape. They stand tall, they stand out. Memory is by design, paid for, curated, collected, not objective. Ask, what is it saying? What is it conveying? History reverberates, percolates, it dictates, aggravates, its long-limbed legacies map on to current inequalities. Ask, what are we protecting and why? Memory is by design, paid for, curated, collective, not objective. Ask, what are we saying? Ask, what does it feel to stand and watch, to see what we're conveying? Welcome to this episode of the Resonate podcast, History, Memory and Reconciliation. My name is Emily McGrath. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Resonate podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Resonate Bristol team, associated with St Stephen's and Holy Trinity Hotwells churches. Welcome. As usual, with our theme this month, there will be a partnering live Zoom event on the 17th of November. Further details can be found on our Twitter or Facebook pages. This month, Adrienne Hawkins interviews Jessica Moody, talking to her about her new book, The Persistence of Memory, Remembering Slavery in Liverpool's Slaving Capital of the World. Together, they look at how slavery and its abolition have been remembered and not remembered in Liverpool. Consider similarities and differences between conversations about memory between Liverpool and Bristol, and consider what this might mean in a church context. Jessica's book is available as an ebook for free, so do check out the link. Then Lee Barnes reflects on reconciliation, what it means for him, and what it might mean locally for the building and community associated with St Stephen's Church Bristol. We aim to cultivate an open-minded space where we can explore ideas and experiences, and perhaps where we can think differently, listen, learn and even change our minds. Hello, I'm Adrian Halkins, uh, one of the uh, Resonate program team. And as some of you know, I teach history at, uh, in the history department at the University of Bristol. And today uh, I'm joined by one of my colleagues in the history department, uh, Jessica Moody, to talk about the theme of slavery and memory and reconciliation in our churches. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you very much for Hi. Yes. Thank you for having me. And Jessica, you have uh, recently published a book called The Persistence of Memory, Remembering Slavery in Liverpool, Slaving Capital of the World. And uh, one of our reasons for wanting to talk to you today is just to think about uh, some of the, the similarities and differences and some of the insights you might have for thinking about a place like St. Stephen's Church in particular in Bristol that has some strong connections with slavery and the slave trade. So perhaps would you be able to begin by telling us a little bit about how you became interested in this topic and maybe tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I suppose my interest in this topic actually came from place. So it came from really from living in Liverpool. So I moved to the city of Liverpool uh, many, many years ago, around 2003. So I moved there for university. Um, and I, I grew up in a quite a landlocked town in the southeast of England in, in a place called Luton in Bedfordshire. And I didn't learn anything 
about Britain's involvement in transatlantic slavery. I, I knew very little about it. I think I probably assumed that it was something that happened in America. Uh, those were the sorts of stories that, that you came across through media. And then it was when I moved to Liverpool, you know, and Liverpool was the largest slave trading port city in all of Europe. And it was only when I moved there that I sort of learned about this at all, really. And I, I was actually on one of those red top tour bus went past the Albert Dock and and the voiceover on, on the the tour guides voiceovers said we're going past the Albert Docks now um, and this is where a number of things were traded including slaves and then sort of they said that Liverpool was number one for slavery which I thought was a really strange way of of putting something as as horrific as as that and and it was from there really that I sort of became interested and Liverpool had you know, some, some good permanent public history offerings about this. There was a museum, there was a gallery. And it was sort of from there, really, that I, that I became interested. And then when I did, um, I wanted to work in museums. So I did a master's degree in heritage ma- management. Uh, and as part of my dissertation for that, um, I looked at Liverpool's heritage of slavery. So it's sort of modern day um, slavery heritage. I think my whole interest in history at all probably came from moving to Liverpool and and sort of, you know, being somewhere where these things were being talked about. I mean, it's not an easy conversation and it was contested, but people, most people knew something about it. And your book is, is less about the slave trade itself and more about how that slave trade has been remembered over time so a history of the memory of of slavery absolutely yes yes exactly that's exactly right adrian so it's uh, it's a history of the memory of slavery in in liverpool so taking a sort of very long time period taking 200 years uh looking at how the city of liverpool has remembered its own involvement in transatlantic enslavement from sort of the end of the 18th century so when when the city was still involved in that trade and then taking that right up to the present day and thinking about how the city has represented that engagement remembered this or not um and how that's changed over time and and why because I, I think as historians we're interested in in how things change over time but also what that reflects about the context what that reflects about any given historical moment uh, and so mapping that over 200 years i think is really interesting because actually you can see how that changes um you can see how it's reflective of of the a given present day moment in time and what sort of influences and shapes that. So just ask a, a very big question to, to get <laughs> started. Um, how important would you say, uh, so we've, we've been talking about histories of, or the current race and racism issues uh, yeah. in the Church of England in particular and in um, contemporary Britain at the moment. How important is this history of, of slavery and the history of the slave trade in, in shaping modern attitudes towards race and, and racism in, in modern Britain? Mm. Well, the short answer, I think, is that it's fundamental. It's of fundamental importance. I think you can't, you can't really understand the, mod, the present day context of the 21st century in terms of attitudes around race and racism without understanding this longer historical context. I mean, simply because in order to to justify and maintain the continued enslavement of one group of people and not another, based entirely on where they are from, what they look like and the color of their skin, that requires a construction of an ideological perspective that makes that okay in a lot of people's viewpoints. So it fundamentally shapes the ways that we view each other the way that Europeans, white Europeans viewed African people because they needed to justify systems of enslavement at the time. I think the thing that makes this more complicated is that that's a fairly, perhaps a fairly obvious point to say that the pro-slavery lobby, so the people who are slave owners and slave traders, that they would hold those sorts of views. The thing that's more complicated is that abolition and abolitionists also held those some of those views as well but in slightly different ways perhaps in slightly more patriarchal philanthropic kinds of ways about looking needing to look after people who are seen as weaker 
people who were seen as, as part of weaker races, um, but also that the abolition debates in the late 18th century and into the 19th century really pushed forward the whole debate over why slavery was or was not okay, in, particularly in Britain and, and in Europe. So from that perspective, you then get much more kind of vociferous and strong um, pro-slavery arguments that are justifying slavery down the lines of race. And that's to try and counter the abolitionist arguments that are, are trying to combat that as well. So it becomes a real sort of heightened melting pot of these racialized ideas on the one hand sort of justifying it and then on the other kind of trying to make mediated reasons for why we should save certain people in the world. So it gets quite yeah complex the, as it the racism goes on. isn't exclusive just to the slave traders it's, it's more absolutely yeah. yeah and I think part of and this may be a question we're coming on to but part of the problem with the way that I, I'd say Britain in particular owns a memory of abolition that hasn't really critically critically deconstructed what was problematic about abolitionist rhetoric and ideology as well so that's all very celebratory and maybe we can come back to that in a, a few minutes sure um, so reading your book, Jessica, one of the things that uh, really struck me was that it seems that Liverpool has done quite a bit more than, than Bristol mm -hmm. in terms of remembering um, or attempting to wrestle with this legacy of, of slavery. And, and that could just be that the book was his, written about Liverpool and um, it may <laughs> not be entirely true. But is, is that a fair comment? Do you think that's a, um, a fair comparison mm -hmm. that Bristol has done a little bit less to, to bring this to the public um, sphere? I think... I think the distinction I would make is that the things that Liverpool have done have tended to stick. <laughs> so I think there's certainly more that's permanent. There's more that is recurring. I think it's, it's not a case that Bristol hasn't done things to remember slavery. I think, I think as a city, Bristol has, but it tends to be more temporary. It tends to have happened at particular points, you know, in 2007 or, or in the 90s. It tends to have been uh, like temporary exhibitions and there have been some really good exhibitions in museums or it's sort of, there are walking tours. I think those are sort of maybe slightly more permanent, but Liverpool has uh, a permanent museum of transatlantic slavery in its own right. Uh, there's also been a gallery since 1994, so quite early, and that was always intended to be permanent. And the city marks Slavery Remembrance Day every year and has done so since 1999. So I think it's not, yeah, it's not a case that Bristol has done anything. And there's sort of less of the permanent tangible things in place uh, as, it, as it is. And is there an explanation for that, do you think, in terms of what, what might have led to to that yeah yeah I think about this a lot <laughs> I think I think there's um there is a different sort of historical context to the way that the two cities were involved in transatlantic slavery in different ways so so Bristol was very early to, to the slave trade and sort of peaked quite early in the 18th century and then towards the end of the 18th century had kind of uh, as, as some people may put it I suppose diversified into other areas or were less wholly kind of concerned with the slave trade whereas Liverpool reached its height of involvement in the transatlantic slave trade in sort of 1806 you know in 1807 sent the largest number of ships that it had been sent so so really what we're talking about there is that Liverpool was at the height of its involvement in the slave trade when the issue was being most publicly debated by the abolitionists and sort of pro-slavery abolitionist lobby. And, and Liverpool was also the largest, the largest slave trading port city in all of Europe. And that meant that it was always at the centre of those kinds of debates. So the abolitionists could sort of say, look at, look at how terrible a moral character the people of Liverpool have. Um, you know, stories of Thomas Clarkson being people trying to push him in the Mersey and you know these sorts of things so not having a great time of it um so that always meant that Liverpool had a slightly different narrative in that it had always been very heavily involved and also at a time when it had been quite a small um port city and and the involvement in the slave trade and related trades that came out through that across the 18th century meant that the population exploded and there was huge kind of in-migration. It really grew the, the port in that way. So, so you see it as 
that you see the sort of historians of, of the time of the 18th century and the 19th century in Liverpool trying to grapple with that as part of its narrative, as part of the story of who Liverpool is. It's very hard not to <laughs> talk about slavery in that respect because it was such a fundamental part of why the port was as important as it was. So that's one element. I think the other element is demographic. So um, because of this massive involvement and also because of the fact that Liverpool developed a much stronger trading relationship with the west coast of Africa into the 19th century because of those pre-existing trading relationships, Liverpool also has um, the longest continuous and settled black presence in the whole country as well. So there's a sizable black community um, that then grows over the 19th century as well, uh, is much more of a West African descent necessarily rather than Caribbean. Um, and, and those people are then very politically engaged throughout the 20th century as well. So there's sort of black political pressure in Liverpool, which is very visible and very vocal um, and there's there's things like um, a lot of alternative and, and um, further education that's black led as well. So there was a, a black college set up in Liverpool called the Charles Wotton College, which was established in the 1970s. And they lead on a lot of educational programs. Um, and a lot of people go through there who are now kind of professors of, of black history, um, who were, were doing things like writing articles, writing pamphlets, leading walking tours, you know, telling this history. And then I think the third thing uh, in, in terms of different context between the two cities is a political context as well, in that I think in Liverpool, after the, the riots of the 1980s, so the, the, the so-called race riots of the early 1980s, which of course started in St. Paul's in Bristol, but um, were, were the largest and most violent in Toxteth in, in Liverpool. Um, after that, you get a number of measures being brought into place to try and you know, talk about race, to talk about difficult, fractured, multicultural cities and what kinds of things can be done. And what happens in Liverpool is that there's a, a sort of politically coherent group of museums, so National Museums Liverpool, um, who lead on a lot of this work and work quite closely, closely with the local council and are able to sort of get stuff done, I suppose, for lack of a um, better way of putting it. But it's because there's the, the coherence and, and the political will there as well. And, and some of that was initially kind of quite fraught, I think, particularly with the black community when they were setting up that first gallery, but they changed what they were doing and they brought people into that conversation and, and worked together a lot more. Um, and I think it also helped that the museums were national, so they sort of got separate funding to the city council, which isn't the case here in Bristol. I think it's very challenging for local authority run museums to have that much autonomy or indeed resourcing. Yeah, so um, we're, we're having these conversations this term um, as part of the, the Resonate uh, series at St. Stephen's and Holy Trinity, um, largely coming out of the, the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer and really wanting to continue the conversations that that started and not let it just be a, a one-off and, and disappear. Mm. But one of, the, one of the challenges we faced, I think, is it's not unique to St. Stephen's, but it's particular to, to the church, one of our churches, is that St. Stephen's was, was prominent in, it was a harborside church. Um, many of the merchants who attended St. Stephen's uh, were involved in the slave trade, which meant that funding into the church had money that came from, from slavery. So I think this is, this is something that, that Bristol is more generally wrestling with at the, at the moment. But in terms of specifically the religious dimension, in your work in Liverpool, have you come across any examples of, of churches in similar positions, perhaps to St. Stephen's that have, have played a role in remembering slavery and, and perhaps moving towards reconciliation and things that we can be, be yeah. doing to, to move it forward? I think one of the things that's really interesting about taking a long historical view, as, as I have in the book of sort of looking over 200 years, is that you see that for most of history, actually the, the sort of main commemorative practice, the main commemorative work has been done by the church. You know, that is the church was the place where commemoration happened. I think for, for 
a lot more than say the government or you know other institutions led on this that for most of most of history i think right up to maybe maybe just past the mid 20th century actually it was the church that was leading on this and i say particularly um around anniversaries so you get religious ceremonies around the centenary of the passing of the abolition act in 1907 um, 1933 and 1934, of course, are big dates where a lot of the main commemorative activity that happens to mark the centenary of the Emancipation Acts um, in Liverpool, but also in, in Bristol as well, happens in, in the cathedral or happens in the, in the churches. So I think that's a really interesting kind of question in a way, because if you, yeah, if you take the long view and you're a historian and you see it, you sort of understand that actually the church has always been central in those kind of commemorative discourses. And in, in Liverpool, uh, of course, it's, um, it's also a place of sectarian divisions as well, you know, similar to cities like Belfast and Glasgow, where, you know, you, you do have kind of divisions between Protestant and Catholic ways of remembering <laughs> as well. Um, and you have two large cathedrals in um, in Liverpool that are at each end of a street called Hope Street. And um, you have the Roman Catholic Cathedral and the Anglican Cathedral. Um, and uh, and in the later part of the 20th century, they sort of take on quite important um, roles. Um, but I'd, I'd say just um, thinking about anniversaries as well, there was an interesting a series of activities that were led by the church in 1957. So one of the things that's interesting about Liverpool is that um, uh, Liverpool takes as its birthday the year 1207, which was when letters patents were granted by King John. And that's what marks Liverpool as a kind of free borough. So, so Liverpool takes this foundational date as being its birthday, basically. So in 12, 1207, Liverpool was born. Um, of course, anyone who's who's you don't have to be a historian to, to note that that also coincides with another important date which is 1807 so that was when the slave trade was was legally abolished and so when 1907 comes around and it's the centenary of uh, the passing of the abolition act uh, it's also Liverpool's 700th birthday <laughs> so you have this really interesting uh, juxtaposition of important dates that are significant in Liverpool's historic story but are marked in quite con I don't know quite tense <laughs> sort of ways one's a celebration and one's actually quite a difficult date for Liverpool um, but in 1957 so that 750th birthday and the 150th anniversary of the passing of the abolition act um the 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 anglican church invites um missionary speakers from abroad and some of this is quite problematic some of this is is kind of celebrating imperial narratives um kind of replicating you know that sort of white savior narrative paternalism um, but some of it is actually really interesting. Some of it involves um, inviting missionaries from South Africa who, who come and, and talk about the way that black people are being treated in South Africa and yeah. to, to raise awareness of apartheid. Uh, and are using this anniversary date as an important time to do that, to say, you know, it's 150 years since the abolition of the slave trade. And look at how black African people are being treated in British colonies or in, in wherever it is, you know. So I think that's a really interesting thing that that's happened. I think that the, go into the, the, the black community in Liverpool itself. Was that was that part of that story in 1957? Were, were people looking at the conditions of black Britons? Sort of, but again, some of that's really problematic. And I think that we, you can't disentangle the sort of good intentions from where there have been some really hurtful and damaging things done. So, so there was a, a very famous report, which was, um, it's known as the Fletcher Report, and it was produced in 1930. And it was about the so-called, this what it was called, the colour problem. In, in Liverpool and it was it was really um, it was very racist it was very um, derogatory particularly it was about uh, mixed race people of mixed race uh, heritage and and their sort of prospects and um, and some of the churches collaborated in in those sorts of uh, reports so that sort of has hung over I think a lot of 
the way that people are maybe distrust a lot of what the church has done um, uh, and so on and so forth. But I think uh, because of the reaction that got that people, particularly in, in the black community, protested things like that, uh, as well as other other sort of moments where um, there were the sort of racist statements made. So there was an, uh, another incident in 1978 when there was a police a documentary about policing, which is, of course, directly relevant to the conversations this year, um, where, again, mi mixed race people in, in Liverpool were seen as the problem. And there were some really sort of problematic and very offensive things that were said. And I think from that kind of challenge, then that sort of changes the narrative um, and you get much more of a reflective kind of engagement from institutions in the city, including the churches there as well. I'd, I'd just also say that um, there is an interesting question overhanging one church in particular in Liverpool, and that's St. James's Church. And St. James's Church is uh, it's an 18th century church, although it's had sort of additions to it, and it's a listed um, church. Um, and it's, it's seen as, it was listed initially because it's important for sort of architectural <laughs> reasons, but actually one of the reasons I think it's really interesting is because we have records attached to that church of baptisms um, and, and death records of uh, enslaved and free African people in the 18th century. And so it's, it's an important sort of site of memory there. Yeah. Um, but it's also become a bit of a battleground of memory as well, because I think that, you know, every so often it comes up that maybe there'll be a memorial there, maybe there'll be something that's done, but um, but it hasn't it hasn't happened it hasn't happened yet. But it's also in the it was in the care of the church's conservation, and now I think it's gone back into the diocese there as well. So I think it's it's sort of interesting, particularly with those historic churches where they become important sites of memory because of. Yeah, what happened there, but also that they, they are symbolic. So that St. James's Church is symbolic of the fact that there was a black community there. You know, through they were, this church was seeing people through life and death <laughs> and birth, you know, in, in the way that churches do. So it sounds like the church has played quite a big role in the, the history of yeah. remembering slavery. And, and part of that is the sort of the maybe a slightly more celebratory history of the, the abolition and the role of religious um, people and ministers in, um, in the abolition movement in the late 18th and early 19th century. Um, one of the things that struck me reading your book was that, yeah, and we've already talked about this a little bit, that the, the, the focus when, when we talk about slavery and slave trade in Britain, we very, very quickly gravitate towards the history of abolition and turn what is in reality, a, a very problematic history into something a lot more celebratory mm -hmm. that we um, we as a country played a, a big role in abolishing this trade that we had been profiting from for several hundred years. Um, and that made me think about uh, St. Stephen's Church um, and that we we actually do something similar, um, that we have a we have a Thomas Clarkson room. Um, from what okay. I can tell, the it wasn't a particularly strong connection between Thomas Clarkson, the abolitionist and the church, but there was a there was a connection and, and we, we remember him today um, mm -hmm. with the name of one of the rooms. And that just struck me as, is, is that um, thinking as a, as a historian who's, who studied memory, how do we engage with that? We, we, we want mm -hmm. to have include this story of abolition in the wider picture to some degree, but we also, it, it's, it's problematic to start with that. So what, what would you, how would you respond to mm -hmm. that poorly formed? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge the problem. I think that should always be the first step is to to tell truth of of the problem and, and really be honest about what has happened. So I think the first step, and I think we've we've been trying to do this first step for a while, I think collectively, <laughs> is is acknowledging the fact that rather than remembering slavery, what we've done is remember abolition. And that's not the whole story. It's only one part of the story. And looking at the whole 400 year history of transatlantic enslavement through the, the bit at the end that you quite like <laughs> is not the full story. It's not the truth of what happened. And it can, it can allow people to just focus on a bit that they find less pro problematic and, and not talk about 
the way that African people were treated and the sort of long term effects of that and sort of not deal with the trauma of it, really. So that's I think the first step is acknowledging that. But I'd say even within the the kind of memorialization of abolition, there's room to do so much more. So it's not necessarily, you know, problematic that there's something named after Thomas Clarkson in St. Stephen's. I think it's it's being aware that there is power in naming, in that we remember Thomas Clarkson in this way because we have a room or whatever it is named after him. But abolition even abolition on its own is a much more complicated history than just a few saints at the top. And I think that what we've done quite well is remember the few saints at the top and the the figures that we can sort of say, oh, well, it was these people. When of course it was a mass movement, it was was difficult for lots of other people who weren't so well off (laughs) to to make a stance on these things, but it was also a popular movement. Um, there were lots of different people involved and I'd like to know more about them. I'd like to know more about the people at the margins or the people who are less well known. Uh, maybe some women, <laughs> we should remember them. Uh, and of course, in the same at the same time, the story of abolition is not the story of abolition unless you talk about African resistance. So as long, you, you also need to acknowledge, as well as the MPs and the petition signatories, we should also remember that African people were resisting on ships and on plantations um, in dangerous, uh, self-sacrificing, often violent ways, and that the abolition movement would not have gained the traction that it had had they not taken that kind of action. That's right. So telling the, the whole story um, allows you to, to be honest to, to each, each part. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, if anyone who's visited uh, St. Stephen's Church, they're it's a very striking artwork at the front of the, the church uh, known as the, the Reconciliation Reredos, which was created by Graham Mortimer Evelyn a few years ago. And I think this, the, the intention of the artwork was to at least start the process of remembering slavery and remembering the, the place of St. Stephen's in, in the slave trade in a, in a more profound um, way, perhaps than simply the story of, of abolition. But as we, as we come to the conclusion, uh, towards the end, Jessica, just sort of asking as, as a historian who's thought a lot about this and the, um, the St. James story in, in Liverpool might have something to, um, mm-hmm. to contribute, but do you see ways, if you had sort of a, an open brief on ways that somewhere like St. Stephen's could, or things that we could be doing as a church to remember slavery and, and maybe move from memory to some sort of reconciliation or moving, moving beyond just the history into something a little bit more active and um, that responds to the contemporary issues that really started this conversation in the first place mm. with the with the Black Lives Matter. And I, I realize this is a, a big question, but do you have any thoughts on things that institutions and buildings and places like St. Stephen's could, could be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think we're at a really exciting moment right now. And this is a very interesting time for people who have worked on this for a long time but also for all the many different kinds of people who have been involved in this kind of conversation for years and years and years now Um, and I think even though you know this has kind of come to a head through the direct action of the Black Lives Matter activists this has of course been a conversation that has been going on for a really long time and I think that some of the things that institutions need to do is as as I say that first step is being honest truth-telling about your own historical involvements with this history also some truth-telling about maybe the ways you've been complicit in misremembering that past as well so we talked about the sort of celebration of abolition saints and and in particular with the church in in the sort of first half of the 20th century where there was the promotion of an imperial mission through talking about missionary work, some of which really did have a very direct link to empire and and the ways that that was solidified. So kind of that that part of the the process of being a a sort of the research and and telling the truth about what happened is a really important part. And I don't think we should skip that and try and and do some memorialization without having really acknowledged the full truth of, of what has happened there. And then I suppose in terms of the next steps, it really depends on each individual 
institution. But I would say, you know, be in dialogue with as many people as you can, but be in dialogue with your black communities. And Bristol has a really strong and active political black community. And I think, you know, nothing, nothing about them without them. That's the, the sort of phrase that I think is often used in uh, other hist- like disability histories and things. So, so bringing people into the conversation is, is quite in, is important. Um, and then some of the things you're, you're talking about there, I think, have had some real traction elsewhere. So the work of artists, I think, can be a, a good way in for people because it's kind of it can open up a conversation. And I think that's that's where we're at, really. We need to have better conversations about this. So if you can find creative ways to do that, I think that's that's a good way forward. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting moment, though, because I think everyone's sort of looking at what everyone else is doing. And, you know, the, the National Trust and, and, and English Heritage are doing similar sorts of things. And obviously universities are are also in the midst of similar uh, processes as as well. And so I think as a as I mean, as a historian, it's very interesting to see people are actually talking about the stuff that you're you're also interested in, which is great. I think it's. It can be, you know, a really good way to to bring a better story about the past to the public and to the fore and, and have better conversations about that. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Jessica. I think that's that excitement is a, a really good place to to finish with, and uh, the, the sense of the honesty behind the history and the, the need to, yeah, accept and tell the the story and then think about ways to to move on positively from from that. So mm. thank you very much for your time. We will try and uh, put a, a plug in for your book in the introduction <laughs> to the podcast. Um, it's, and... it's available open access. You don't even have to pay for it. It's great. <laughs> what better deal can you get than that? <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much for your time. And uh, yes, goodbye for now. Thank you, Adrian. <laughs>
that is another process of reflection and one in which we each participate in that story whether we choose to or not but obviously how we choose to do it has a greater impact thinking uh, about the profound work that my predecessor and others have done at St Stephen's in terms of telling the the story and the narrative of um, St Stephen's and how in recent years we've tried to build on some of this and develop it in other ways so that the story of the building, if you like, and the story of the community within it shares one that honours honors God, honours uh, other people, doesn't um, shy away from or ignore areas where there is pain or where there has been injustice. So I think that it's important to be open to to learning and growing and not having all the answers in the area of how we reconcile... Well, I certainly haven't got all the answers of how we reconcile um, a past and shape um, the present and define the future. When I think about... uh, uh, When I first arrived at St Stephen's, I'd obviously learnt some but not all of the history of the church building Um, and at first in those initial um, particularly couple of years it was more well not more but it was about taking a fledgling community where the building if you like kind of consumed the people and then as the community grew and established itself and became more secure the people began to take presence over the physical building to kind of reclaim in some sense its its narrative its history um not in ignoring the past but actually confronting it uh i would say it's still on that journey um uh, of trying to honor the the memories and the voices of those that have gone um before and <clears throat> i think that um, you know, can a history be healed and restored and reconciled? You know, in what way do we leave the marks and the wounds of of painful actions and memories? In what ways do we learn from our past uh, in a way that brings ontological change, not only in ourselves, but in the world around us? As some of you will know, in in recent years, the reordering team at St. Stephen's, which is a fantastic group of people, have been doing really hard work looking at the idea or the vision of transforming the sacred space of St. Stephen's to become a, a place of welcome and wonder and worship. But what does being a place of welcome and wonder wonder and worship mean in the light of this discussion around reconciliation within the thinking and discussions has been the theme and the word and the place of reconciliation how a physical place that has both gathered people carrying out racist and um, uh, unjust attitudes and actions and at the same time how a physical place has been a pe- has been a a, a a physical space of people meeting to oppose and challenge such um, injustice and racism. Um, how do you reconcile, or not necessarily reconcile to find a peace, but how do you reconcile those different um, realities and and all that has gone before in other? areas and things we know and things we don't know the kind of voices that need to be once again heard and you think of the work that's happening with the around you know the the work around the association of the unknown shore at saint stephen's and you know incredible work there trying to not trying to but giving a voice back to some of those connected to saint stephen's in the past how do we how do we give a voice and hear 
hear the cries? How do we reconcile the voices we're aware of, but also the hidden voices, the ones we've not yet heard or perhaps will never hear? When the the physical building, if you like, has gathered and um, given a, a forum or a place for things that have impacted and affected lives in in the city and beyond um, for uh, in incredibly unjust and wrong ways. I think that you know in the recent book that some of you have read, Go Ship, Azariah, as a friend to me is a, an incredibly wonderful person. Uh, as you know, I like to think that I have a little bit of a skill in the poetic realm, whereas Azariah takes creativity in words and mixes them together in, in something very powerful, embracing and confronting. Incredible. And I remember finishing reading his book in the early hours of one night, and I just sat and wept. And um, I'm still processing much of what I read, as I'm sure others are. But, of course, I found myself as characters on some of the pages, working within the institution that Azariah is writing about. And rightly so, that was uh, uncomfortable to find myself. I think made me think and I continue to think of that that box in the Johari window about those parts of ourselves that others see but we cannot see in ourselves and I'm aware I have so much to learn about my own conscious and unconscious bias that affects any human being in a way that in a way that perceives or treats them as in some way less than myself there is always more that I and we can do to engage. But on that, I'm always also sensitive to sisters and brothers who have been here before, where heightened conversations and appeals for action and reactive changes, even if very positive and good, has sometimes led to what was in the light fading out of sight. And I really hope and pray that this time it is different I think of some of the work in the last four years that in a small way myself and Fatima and Silas have done in gathering church leaders across different denominations and across cultures in, um, at St. Stephen's and in the city to have a vision to connect and draw together the different church communities, albeit through the leaders, through the leadership but having different theological expressions of church in different contexts and coming together to, to see each other, to be known, to hear each other, to pray together, to support each other, to spend time with um, somebody from a different community may in a small way just be one of those small parts of the bigger picture of how we are trying to, to build a city of hope and how we're trying to reconcile our past with the present and shape and define the future. I think that, you know, in sense that, that we're still on that journey, you know, I think that I've tried to, and we've tried to together, to create a community at St. Stephen's whose culture is uh, welcoming and authentic and appropriately vulnerable in how it tries to be community alongside each other I think it's tried to have and create spaces and places and forums to discuss difficult questions of church heritage uh, institutional heritage and has not been afraid to address certain aspects of that um, head on and um, actually is also prepared which I love about the culture of the community to is open to change, open to learning, and to a degree recognises its significant, um, like the Johari window I said earlier, those parts of ourselves which we just don't see and we need others to help us to see where we are lacking or missing or getting things wrong. I think there is an openness to that. And in the future, I think who we are, how we do what we do, what defines our culture and our actions, what motivations drive us to engage with and support and give our time, money and resources to, will reveal what we have really learnt from um, what's going on at the moment and from our own history. 
and the, the legacy of memories and voices that cry out to be heard, that cry out to be remembered, that cry out to be reconciled. This is something that cannot, in my opinion, be done in isolation of one community, but a community doing so in connection with the structures and processes and policies, buildings and finances and so on that influence and impact it. You become what you invest in. Being reconciled to God comes from the work of God, but it also involves us making a choice, a decision, to participate in that reconciled relationship and living and being changed and shaped by it as a result. And I hope and I pray that as the community of St. Stephen's, as it's the community goes forward as the building in a sense which is not neutral in any of this goes forward that God would profoundly uh, shape and help to define and lead and give wisdom and ability um, to to not only know but to do what is right in order to honour appropriately the legacies and the memories and the um, to to bring us to as far as possible um, a place where there is a reconciliation, uh, but above everything, where there is rec- reconciliation for those who's who who need it more than anyone else. Those. Um, for whom they've not been reconciled or not been heard or their voices have not been listened to and, and so on and so so forth. Uh, what I mean by that is it's, I just, I feel so, um, uh, I understand my own reconciliation with God, but in the scale of what it means as a community, as a building, as a city, I I I long for... Um, those who desperately seek to be reconciled far above than than I seek for myself. I I would like to become um, um, just just a whisper um, in all of this and almost all, I want the loudest voices and to be heard that need to be reconciled and to be healed. was produced by me, Emily McGrath. The music was created by Scott Holmes, accessed through the Free Music Archive. Thank you to our contributors, Adrian, Jessica and Lee. You can find us on our Twitter at Resonate Bristol and Facebook at Resonate. Thank you for listening and join us again next time.